0: Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase a member FDIC 2024 JPMorgan Chase and Co.
1: Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Everyday your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's
2: largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at
1: tmobilecom slash now.
0: And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller?
3: I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free.
0: In the 1970s, Jackson Brown was known as one of the originators of the carefree California classic rock sound, with hits like Dr. My Eyes and Running on Empty. As his career progressed, Jackson Brown's knack for writing soul-searching lyrics turned more political. He began to write protest songs that addressed weighty issues like environmental degradation and U.S. foreign policy. Brown continues to use his music as a vehicle for change today. His latest album, Downhill From Everywhere, was inspired by a documentary about the Pacific garbage patch and our impact on the planet. On today's episode, Bruce Tedlam talks to Jackson Brown about how he is able to turn catastrophic headlines into palatable songs. Brown also talks about moving to New York City when he was 18 and writing songs for the Velvet Underground's Nico. Brown also remembers the time his former label boss, David Geffen, shut down his attempt to quote the Black Panthers' Bobby Seale in a song. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Headlam and Jackson Brown.
4: I want to talk about your new album, of course. Uh, first of all, where did the
1: title come from? It comes from a, an oceanographer named Captain Charles Moore, the guy that discovered the North Pacific gyre, all the plastic swirling in the gyre has become known as the Pacific Garbage Patch. But he's the guy that sort of, of discovered it and sort of brought it to attention of the rest of the world. and. In talking about the ocean and in our impact on the ocean, he says that the ocean is downhill from everywhere. And that's where the title comes from. And it's really at the heart of what the song is talking about. our know, humans, humans' impact on the planet.
4: You know, this album, it has political songs like that one. The Dreamer, it's got other songs that deal with current issues. And this surprised me. It seemed like a very optimistic album to me. The personal <laughs> songs seemed very optimistic which is not always something i associate with your music it wasn't wistful or valedictory were you in a good mood when you when you wrote this album were you in a good place
1: this this album got written um over a period of years so i think that the, that maybe i have a desire to be optimistic or to be be hopeful not optimistic but to be hopeful the act of writing a song i i think i reflexively want to leave things in a there to be some light, some possibility for a positive outcome.
4: You know, in uh, Still Looking uh, for Something, Looking for Love, your, you know, Minutes from Downtown, they're the songs of somebody who's kind of in the game and, and <laughs> enjoying it.
1: <laughs> the whole album has a, a sense of dealing with things that are interminable, they, things that are going on and on and on, problems that were there before and are there now. Yet it's about moving forward and it's about trying to find, find your way you know, forward. As far as being in the game, you know, you got to think that you are, even if you're not.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Come on, you must be in the game, please. (laughs) Give us hope here.
1: To want to make music, you know, you have to have, that's the thing, just that you want to, you know, that you still want to. I mean, it'd be easy to get tired of it. But I think, I think that probably the reason I don't is I don't, I don't do it all the time. I'm not, I'm not releasing album after album and, you know, releasing an album every year or two, you know, it's just, I mean, the song, The Dreamer, I was trying to write that many years ago. And it just sort of took a turn. Uh, I, I met this guy, Eugene Rodriguez, and showed him this old song idea I had, which began with, uh, you know, like the, the Minutemen being down on the border enforcing, you know, trying to, you know, vigilantism. And um, it just turned into a song about, about a young person coming to this country and giving her future to this country. And, and that is so optimistic. There's so much hope in that. In the, in the, in the midst of the, the debacle that is our immigration policy and the years of trying to deny, you know, access to people who are fundamentally here before we were. And, uh, you know, to a great extent, you know, Cal- people have been coming from Mexico to California or Arizona, you know, since before they were in the union. It's just like they're the best among us immigrants my grandmother came here when she was 16. Mm-hmm. so there's a lot of there's a lot about this country that uh, the are uh, the optimism that people have when they come here folded together with the difficulties they they endure but you know it's a, it's a mixture of both you know hardship optimism you know struggle in each all these songs i think
4: you mentioned the dreamer and i'm wondering when you when you do write a song that way you know because your your personal songs people relate to them because of sort of commonality of emotions that people have and the dilemmas they face in life. When you're approaching a more political song, do you say, I want to write something about immigration because it's wrong? I mean, how do you get from there? How do you get from the sort of high level New York Times headline to the emotional heart of a song like that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Because the thing that I've I've tried to do in the past sometimes to try to broach a subject uh, strategically and try to get, draw people into the subject and talk about what matters to each of us. And here's the problem with anything political is if you're too oblique, they won't know what you're talking about. And if you're too direct, they, they run the risk of making people feel that they're being sort of scolded or lectured. Also, I told myself, look, I want this to sound like the way it would sound like if you and I were drinking in a bar and we're just talking about what's going on in the world, not that as if you have some sort of elevated place and lecturing people about something they should know about, but don't, or, don't, or they should care. You know, you have to make people, you have to get to people where, where they do care and where what they do know about. Mm-hmm. In the case of Downhill from Everywhere, it's not ex- it's not exactly political because there's no polemic. There it's just like a bunch of compounding and sort of contrasting images. You know, the prison, the mall, factory farming, the hospital, And the fun of it was to make it flow out of it so that these uh, seem like stream consciousness. And sometimes it was, but you have to to make those words sound good with rock and roll. And what I really wanted was a song that you didn't have to listen to the words to at all. You would just listen. You might hear some of them going by while you're listening to the guitar part or the the bass and the drums. And I just wanted to feel good. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I I decided not to talk. I mean, I had like a a verse that was going to, you know, it wasn't like to name trump I just didn't want a song with his name in it. Or I wasn't going to refer to him, but I was going to be talking about like, uh, you know, downhill from the White House, downhill from the dump, downhill from that something or the downhill from the biopsy and that suspicious lump. And yeah, <laughs> right. But that's, I don't, that's, that's the editor in me that said, mm, okay, maybe you can put that aside. We'll keep looking.
4: Do you think as a result of this last year, when you go back out on the road, are there songs of yours from your catalog you say, you know, suddenly this makes sense now. If I if I take this out, in a way, it might not have two years ago.
1: I'm not sure. The, the process of deciding what you're going to play is a really involved thing. I'd say I'm I'm more involved in with which of my old songs the audience wants to hear after having been shut down for this amount of time, and which of my new songs I can, you know, I can I can expect to get a a, a real, real strong listening to, you know, with. There were times when I went out and tried to play every every new song in an album in a set, and you wind up playing you know more than half the songs would be these new songs, and I got sort of chided by some of my friends like and people really come to hear you what they already know, and you might want to just like cut that down to two or three songs and at the same time, I think that this is a really important time where people do want to know what's what's transpired mm-hmm. and um these a lot of these songs were you know written before and uh, the pandemic, and they're about the last several years, or they're, or they're the culmination. Some of the songs go back a lot longer than that. And matter of fact, Downhill from Everywhere was the song I, I was writing for a long time. And what I think is probably not going to be apparent to anybody, you know, but how would anybody know? But I mean, I've got on my laptop screen here, I've got like all these sound checks where I'm trying to play that song. I play these things back, and there are moments when like I thought, okay, that's the way the drums have to play this song. Well that's or the time that Greg Lee's played this incredible like ding ding get that that this really great guitar lick He figured it out all these sound checks where something happened and I go oh yeah and there, then there was a time where I cut the song and and I say look I'm I'm, I'm screwing this up. Let me just try to play my guitar but Like Jeff, you sing it. And he's singing, my, so my keyboard is, the guy that's singing this line downhill from the water Well, he's swinging it in a certain way. He just hears things that way. He goes like, So he's swinging the track that way with his la la las whatever he's singing to lead the band, whereas the melody really goes, "Da da 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 da." And it's against the beat which provides a kind of tension and you can get away with it, but it's not as in the end. (laughs) I tried to convert all the phrasing (laughs) to his phrasing and that really didn't work. (laughs) Throwing off the words again and then coming back to my, I got to go back. my. But then I just realized I said, just I can have him answer it. I can have him reaffirm that rhythm with his vocal. Downhill from the fat, from the baby's room, downhill from the, you know, so I gave him, I wrote a bunch of lines for him to sing too. No. And downhill, I thought as cool as like getting my getting my singers to sing downhill from the Anthropocene. I was gonna have one of them say, "Look it up, <laughs> downhill." <laughs> you know, it's fun because I am writing for a band. Like I, I called in writing that song. I really called a guitar part from Greg, a, a vocal phrasing from Jeff. I mean, a, a moment where Fritz was kind of channeling the Stones and trying to play this thing. Just make the song about music first, you know. And so, Do most songs for you start with lyrical ideas? It's usually some piece of lyric and music at the same time, a feel or a little, little bit of music, yeah, at the same time. But it's usually a phrase, yeah.
4: And, but you're still a, you're a slow writer, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You notice. <laughs> yeah. What's the fastest you've ever written a song?
1: One of the fast songs was uh, on this album, uh, A Little Soon to Say, came up pretty quickly. What's A Little Quickly for you? That I had this idea and a month later i really started to write it and then in, in a matter of about a week or so i had kind of you know wow you know stuff happens i got a phone call in the middle of writing this first and i got a phone from a friend of mine who's who i work with like my production guy and he like I mean, i've never ever told him this too, but in that conversation with him i just led me into this whole reassessment of my whole you know like i didn't find much wisdom when i was when time was on my side, that old verse came from like a feeling I had from a conversation on the phone while writing the song. It's not like I set out to say something. It's just, you, it's a process of uncovering things then in you, you know, within you. We'll be right back with more from Jackson Brown after this break.
3: I've interviewed many successful people over the years. And one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing, They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase Mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC.
2: Brought to you by T-Mobile for Business. Now is the time for 5G business. These days, we have robots that do brain surgery. You can ask an AI chatbot to write your term paper. But yesterday, as I was driving fruitlessly around the parking lot of my local supermarket, all I could think was, why can't someone come up with a gizmo that just directs me to the nearest available parking spot? Well, it turns out that's just the kind of solution that T-Mobile for Business can come up with. From smarter cities to safer industrial workplaces, 5G can enable a better, more connected world. And T-Mobile for Business has the network built for the way business and tech converge today. Right now, workforces are more widely distributed than ever. Industries are ripe for disruption, and tech is advancing at a rate that requires vast and secure connectivity. Offering the nation's largest 5G network, T-Mobile is the best network partner to take your business to the next level. Now is the time to business bravely and start building your future today. Go to tmobile.com/slash now to learn more. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than one hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.
4: We're back with more from Bruce Hudlam and Jackson Brown. You are associated with Los Angeles in a way that few people are associated with places, you know, maybe Kurt. Kirk- Cobain in Seattle or Willie Nelson in Austin but you're this you are this Los Angeles character so I'm interested in that early part of your career when you left when you went to New York to work can you tell me a bit about that because it was Dylan who inspired you to a certain extent and what was it like for when you're very young a kid to leave LA and go to New York
1: well I grew up in LA until I was about 13. But then at the time that I went to New York, I'd been living in Orange County. My family had moved out to Fullerton. You know, I kicked myself that I didn't go somehow get a job at the Fender Factory and like have like a stash of 60s, you know, Stratocasters that, to show for it. But I was really, yeah, I was really immersed in folk music and Dylan and and continue to be immersed in roots music and folk music after Dylan sort of. See, there's a thing about folk music is that you learn a song and you make it your own. You either combine, maybe you've combined Dave Van Rong's version of uh, Staggerly with Mississippi John Hurt's version of Staggerly. You take the best of those versions and you put them together and put it in your own. Matter of fact, I wrote a a, verse, a, a version of Staggerly that, in which I combine those versions and, um, and I'm quoting Bobby Seale, you know, of the Black Panthers, you know, like Bobby Seale said, Stagger Lee was the brother off the block whose actions had to re- had to speak for him because he couldn't relate to talk. Well, listen, all you millionaires, is something you should know. He gets his shit together. Some of you gonna have to go. <laughs> now, is that a political song? <laughs> the fact is that, that David Geffen heard that. And he went, huh? Women, what's wrong with millionaires? <laughs> what's wrong with wanting to be a millionaire? And it didn't make my album. <laughs> didn't make the first album. But just so you know, like what I was referring to is the fact that you made these folk songs speak for you. And it wasn't just like summoning up an arcane song and rendering it faithfully from, you know, it may have started with that. My always Joan Joan incredible songs that she curated on her albums, you know, but she did something to them. She cast a spell on them that was brand new and traditional and, and ancient at the same time. So that's what started happening. And Dylan, Dylan did it, you know, And he did it so well that he sort of, you know, led the whole procession off into like a brand new direction. And I was living in Orange County by the time that started happening. And when I got involved in folk music, before that, I listened to my father's music, Dixieland. So some of the great singers, Ella Fitzgerald. And matter of fact, we saw Dylan on the television one time. It was before, first I ever saw him. And I was, it was like a very short show and it was Dylan sitting on the edge of a stage somewhere. It was maybe one of the first appearances i ever made on TV. And he was, I said, wow, what is this? You know, my dad says, and he wasn't into folk music, but he said, this is the real thing. This is the real thing. He said, I knew guys in the army that sounded like this. This is, he was stationed in Mississippi for a while. He said, this sound reminds me of that guy sitting on the edge of his bed, playing the guitar in the barracks. You know, this is like, this is, and so he, he sort of validated Bob Dylan, very early on for me, at a time when and really what happened immediately of course, is that all these songs that he had written were were learned by everybody, and the thing is that the job still was to r- make it your own, so I started writing songs at that right around that same time, and what you write about what you know you know
4: your dad he what instrument did he play
1: he played piano, but he loved horns, he loved the trumpet, and he loved the trombone. He played a lot of Jack Teagarden and he would walk around the house playing the trombone saying, listen, there's only three positions. Can you check out how many notes he's playing? But he's only now, forget having like combinations of fing- of keys and fingering. You only really have that, that, and that. And then it's your lip. And so he's walk- he's fascinated with how the trombone is played. He's not, he's not good at it, but he actually did one, one time get to play with Jack Teagarden and, and uh, he wound up with Teagarden's tie and Teagarden evidently Teagarden like typed his tie. They left the jam session at 6 in the morning or something and, like, Tea Garden, had a stein, so he we went up. And it was a it was like a talisman. It was like a prized possession mm-hmm. of his. Also a picture of him playing with Django Reinhardt. He was a really good musician. And he wasn't in J- Reinhardt's band. He actually had booked Reinhardt for these parties and he would get to sit in. Wow. So we I grew up with that sort of lore. But when folk music happened, it was taking on all this information about the world, about our history, and about who really is here, you know? So even though I lived in this, like, really sterile little tract home
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> in
1: Orange County with my family, I mean, the conduit and the lifeline to the to the world outside was music.
4: A lot of musicians I've talked to, um, their, their fathers were jazz
1: musicians. Oh. And often, they didn't like their kids' musical choices. <laughs> my father, I remember my father coming to see my, one of my gigs. I, I vaguely understood that, my, that there wasn't a lot about my singing or my, even my, 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 my songs were not sophisticated. You know, it wasn't like, he was, he was not going to get to cross the Jordan, you know, and come, go off into the future with us. You know, he was like, a, even in jazz, I, you know, he, he told me, you know, like he said, like, yeah, Miles Davis, eh, wow. you know, and I thought, <laughs> really? Oh no. <laughs> I thought, okay, well you're definitely telling me what, where you're at, but. We we diverged on so many things. He said, "You you and your friend think you're nonconformist." We didn't really, and they never used that word. There wasn't the issue. He said, "But you're going to have to cut your hair, and you're going to have to you're going to want to raise a family, and then you're going to have to get a job and cut your hair." And I thought, well, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there are all the ways in which it, you, that you don't necessarily have to follow your parents' the dictates of their 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 view. But at the same time, he gave me. He gave me such an incredible love and appreciation for music, for jazz, for, for an and understanding of who's here in terms of, you know, racially, you know. The deities in our house were, like I say, Ella Fitzgerald. And I vaguely understood that he didn't have that fine enough appreciation for what I was doing. He'd come to my gig and at the end of the gig he'd say, don't lose that drummer. You know, about all he could say, he, yeah, and he's right. I mean, like he'd say, you know, he really dug Russ Conkle's drumming, and but I, I had him come over, and I wanted to sit, sit him down and play him The Pretender, and there's a song for him in the second half. And he was asleep before we got to the second half, you know. And I just went, well, that's just about perfect, you know.
4: He, he didn't hear. He didn't hear Daddy's tune. No, he didn't. Wow. Uh, he, when he talked
1: about like cutting your hair and were those his resentments that he had to? He wasn't resentful about it. He just no? thought that we were you know young and sowing our wild oats. But that there was, I, he he was describing what he had done, which was he he said he 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 never thought he was a professional musician. He always thought of himself as an amateur, and he that he had never really followed through, or that he'd you know gotten the job that jobs that he needed to do to have a family and like. But he also told me really wild stuff like he enjoyed being in the army because he didn't have to think. And to be <laughs> to be fourteen and to hear that is like all I needed to know. That's okay. That kinda of, yeah. <laughs> kind of disqualifies you as a, as a as an advisor, you know? But he also um he'd say the coolest stuff. Like one time he said he he, he was over in my house and he he was leaving. He said, well play good. But you didn't have to say he is, he was an English teacher and a he would correct us every night at the dinner table. We didn't have to learn grammar or any of the rules of grammar because we were just forced to speak correctly all the time. Not forced, but just admonished if we didn't. And I said to him, play good. What do you mean? Don't you mean play well? He said, yeah, but I've never heard a musician say play well. Play good. (laughs) So
4: how old were you then when you went to New York? I was 18. And you'd been playing
1: around LA. And then what, what took you to New York? I'd been playing out in Orange County, you know, coffee houses and stuff. And I was living in Orange County. My friends w- would drive into New York, and I. There was like a, they needed a third person to share with the gas and tr- share in the driving. We made that trip in th- three and a quarter days. You know, it was like just straight through driving around the clock. We were delivering a car to my friend's family up in. I think it was up in Niagara Falls that he had to deliver this Rambler American station wagon. And so we drove it straight to New York and went to the, another friend's house who was living on the, on the Lower East Side. So I had a, but yeah, I was from, I was from a, a set of players and that, that hung around a club called The Paradox in Tustin the reason they called it the paradox was it was traditional music for contemporary minds is what the, the guy's business card said. Yeah. And, 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 and in a way it was he and that guy, the guy that owned the club sang a lot of Hank Williams. And the, his, he and his partner, their dream was to have a club where people came and made music. And in that club, I heard Sonny Terry and Brown McGee, Jack Elliott, all these musicians that would come and play the Ash Grove in LA would always be looking for another gig. And they, there was a gig out in Orange County that they could go play a weekend, you know, Add to, and and to defray the cost of coming west in the first place. So there was a very strong folk scene, and there were a bunch of songwriters. And he, these guys hired my friend Steve Noonan to. He got a gig there. It was really a big deal that one of us, one of us sort of rugrats, were like ha, had a gig. Had, like we could go hear each other's, and and Steve sang some songs of mine and sang and, and songs that he had written with Greg Copeland. And these are my mentors, you know, guys that were two two years older than me, but. Let me hang with them, but when we went to New York, one of the things we that happened in that first week or two that was there is that Tim Buckley had a gig at the at the Dom, and Nico was on the bill, and and she was being accompanied by Sterling Morrison, and apparently, sometimes it would be Sterling, sometimes it would be Lou Reed, sometimes it would be John Cale, but she was leaving the Velvet Underground and to to be a solo artist, and I think that it was a the vibe, I don't really know this for sure, but the vibe was that it was all something that they were all agreed about. I think she stayed in the Velvets. Might have been a more mainstream band, you know? On the other hand, I don't think they care that much about that, what's mainstream. They were actually like real outliers. Mm-hmm. But I think that they were helping her along with her transition to a solo artist. So she offered Tim Buckley the job of accompanying her because I don't think they, she, I don't, maybe it didn't go well with her that one night it was one guy, one night it was another guy. <laughs> so she wanted her own accompanist. And and he called me and said that there was this child. He said, I don't think she understands that I have like a, a career that I'm like, <laughs> she doesn't know about me. You know, I've got a gig in Boston next week. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to become her accompanist. And he knew I was destitute. I came to New York with 50 bucks in my pocket <laughs> and a Signal Oil credit card that I could use if it was an emergency, my mom's credit card, you know? Yeah. And without without clothes for winter, it was the snow on the ground. And I was wearing these loafers, you know, and like, I don't know what people thought about us. We're Californians, <laughs> like wearing t-shirts and loafers and stuff in the snow. And like, what, you know, what are you doing? I, I had that job for just a little while. It didn't, didn't last very long. I, I wanted, wanted to go back home and, but you gave, you
4: gave her some songs, like These Days, which she made it.
1: Yeah, during that time, th- that song, that, that her Chelsea Girl record was recorded, and I was on a session. I mean, we recorded what we did. I mean, I, she'd learned three of my songs, and they're they're on that record. And I also accompanied her on, on a, a Tim Harden song, that, where Tim Harden wrote a song about Lenny Bruce, a Dylan song called Keep It With Mine, which no one had had ever heard before. It was like, she, she was curating songs the way, really? I mean, I compare her to Judy Collins because Judy Collins was the one who would make an album. something I mean, Before we, coming to New York, I mean, the, the song I heard, a, record I heard a lot was her album in which she had Circle Game and an obscure Donovan song, a Leonard Cohen song, a Jacques Brel song. Mm-hmm. She, Judy Collins was really like curating songs and presenting them you know in as a singer and as a stylist and really nobody thinks of her this way of course but that's what nico was doing she had collected a bunch of songs she had lou reed songs you know police kick and stomp young love "Puss runs through matted hair i remember these songs mm-hmm. <laughs> lou reed was it he he was on the he was on the session i was on and that when i say on the session it was just a, it was just me and him and he, she recorded the songs that in, in that day and it was Tom Wilson, the great, great Columbia staff producer who had produced Bob Dylan. I don't know if he knew what to make of, you know, what to do as a producer, but but what, one thing they did was they took all these songs that were basically sung that she sang with one person playing guitar. Mm-hmm. And the day I was there, it was like the song she, that I accompanied her on, the song that she did with Lou Reed. Then later they put strings on everything, which Lico hated. She thought that was like... I think she thought it was kind of like an easy solution to like what to do with these songs. It was like a kind of one size fits all. It was a thing that just masked everything. But I think it resulted, like some of these songs like These Days and Ferris of the Seasons really benefited by having the strength. The string arrangements were great. Chelsea Girls had a, has a, had a kind of longevity and a kind of, uh, there was there's a moment there that was sort of captured. So why didn't you want to stay? I guess I was just homesick, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I think about it, what would have happened if I stayed is an intriguing question for me because I, I probably would have gotten in a band a little way earlier, than sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. I would have been an East Coast musician. I would have ha- been exposed to more kinds of music. But what I did, though, I mean, I when I came back, I tried out for this band called The Gentle Soul. And were, in that same audition, I met Jesse Ed Davis. And I also in that same that same sort of audition session was... This guy, Leroy Mar- Marinell, who later wrote, co-wrote Werewolves of London with Warren Zevon and a couple other songs with him. So, I mean, I was uh, I was growing. You know, I just I would go here, go there. On the way home from the airport, there was a leaked version of "Sergeant Pepper playing on the radio. They, it wasn't supposed to be played. Wow. But somebody had this, I think B. Mitchell Reed, somebody had this copy of it that he'd been given by one of the Beatles and he just couldn't help himself. He played it on his show. People going, <laughs> the Beatles are on KFWD. And a week later the album came out. But I mean, there are all these momentous things for me to be hearing a day in the life and she's leaving home on the way home from an airport. But it was, a, it was exciting time for me. I just, you know, writing songs, trying to write songs. I like, I, I had started the song a child in these Hills when I was in New York, because it was out of homesickness. It was like, You know, it's about being from a a more pastoral place, you know. We'll
0: be right back with more from
1: Jackson Brown.
3: You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC.
2: Brought to you by T-Mobile for Business. Now is the time for 5G business. These days... We have robots that do brain surgery. You can ask an AI chatbot to write your term paper. But yesterday, as I was driving fruitlessly around the parking lot of my local supermarket, all I could think was, why can't someone come up with a gizmo that just directs me to the nearest available parking spot? Well, it turns out that's just the kind of solution that T-Mobile for Business can come up with. From smarter cities to safer industrial workplaces, 5G can enable a better more connected world. And T-Mobile for Business has the network built for the way business and tech converge today. Right now, workforces are more widely distributed than ever. Industries are ripe for disruption, and tech is advancing at a rate that requires vast and secure connectivity. Offering the nation's largest 5G network, T-Mobile is the best network partner to take your business to the next level. Now is the time to business bravely and start building your future. Today, go to tmobile.com/slash-now to learn more. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than one hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just thirty dollars a month, less than a single Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.
0: We're back with the rest of Bruce Edlum's interview
4: with Jackson Brown. It's interesting to think about what kind of songwriter you would have been had you stayed there. Right. Different influences, different...
1: Well, you know what? I mean, out in Orange County, where my friends and I were, you know, like, we're... Practically lived like squatters. I mean, somebody to rent a house and then there'd be like 20 people (laughs) in it, you know. But they were really into the Velvet Underground, much more than I was when I was in New York. They got into the Velvet Underground and played that stuff all the time. So I never really like got the whole LA, New York. The the differences are more apparent to me now, but at the time I didn't think that you were, you know. And everybody I met in New York wanted to come to California. I, you know, they find out that I was from L.A. And they say, "Okay, I want to go to L.A. Let's go. I got a car. You want to go? I'd be looking at this girl with a Mustang and thinking, yeah, I want to go to L.A. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it was an exciting time. Hey, I was 18 and and, uh, there was a lot of world unfolding wherever I went. I'm
4: interested if you could go back and talk to your 18 year old self about writing.
1: I'd say what Dwayne Altman eventually did say to me. Mm hmm. Like this folk music thing, that's okay. And you do it really well, that's okay. But you need to be in a band, brother. (laughs) You need to play these songs with a drummer.
4: (laughs) Come on, man. You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but you have the single best induction speech
1: <laughs> I do. Even if it did really eclipse me right in there. I mean everything about me was eclipsed by that speech. Oh man.
4: No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Now everybody remembers the first part of that speech, and it's Bruce Springsteen describing how when he would play with you, you would get all the great looking girls looking at you on stage and the E Street band would only get men. And as he said, not very good looking men. But that's the part people remember, but I think the heart of the speech, do you mind if I just play you a little clip of the heart of the speech? Is that okay? Sure.
5: Jackson Brown gave us Paradise Lost. Now I always imagine, what if Brian Wilson, long after he'd taken a bite of that orange that the serpent offered to him? What if he married that nice girl and Caroline, no. I always figured that she was pregnant anyway. And what if he moved into the valley and had two sons? One of them would have looked and sounded just like Jackson Brown. Cain, of course, would have been Jackson's brother-in-arms, Warren (laughs) Zevron. We love you, Warren. But Jackson to me, Jackson to me was always the tempered voice of Abel, toiling in the vineyards, here to bear the earthly burdens, confronting the impossibility of love, here to do his father's work. Jackson's work was really California pop gospel. Listen to the chord changes of Rock Me on the Water before the deluge is gospel through and through.
4: Okay. Other than he tried to upstage you on your night. (laughs) I I mean, I do think it's one of the great speeches I've ever heard about anything. I'm interested in your reaction to that.
1: Well, I was blown away. It was it it was also so funny but i was you know my reaction you know it didn't escape my notice that there was a camera on me watching him say this stuff you know but it was it was very really, it was it was a it was huge you know see for the longest time i didn't know how to describe what i did i don't know i didn't know that anybody how many people really got what i did or how to how to describe it or what to say the idea that someone else was going to stand there and sum it up or say in so many words, what it is that I do was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, the word genius doesn't mean like that you're smarter than everybody means there's one particular thing that is your genius. You know, one time I I, I told a girlfriend of mine this, she said, oh, don't worry, you're not one. <laughs> but but the thing is that whatever it is that you're particularly good at, to have somebody describe that as is an is incredible gift, and that is somebody that I think so much of that and it's meant so much to me that it was just a really overwhelming thing to have happen at the same time it was done with such love and such a such an embrace it was was incredible
4: i find that a little scary that speech almost not scary but it puts a huge burden on you to me like you're the responsible one you're the guy who is like who's you know witnessing the failure of love you know the impossibility of love and trying to put together the fragments of our life and i thought Oh man, poor Jackson Brown! Like, but <laughs> yeah. but you almost—I'd read recently that that you said you were writing songs when you were a kid, but you probably would have had more fun had you just gone out in a garage band and played Gloria for three hours, the way every other kid was doing.
1: Yeah, I still want to do that. As a matter of fact, I'd have some offers after I wherever that was printed or something like people say like, hey, we want to play Gloria with you. That's true. There's <laughs> something about that. Look. That's just a component that i that got left out being a being on band in high school, but i didn't- was, i didn't admire it. I liked Gloria, but I didn't really admire that the fact i did it was a really hard place for songs to grow and for lyrics, lyrics to be heard very hard so i so I gravitated to the listening rooms where people really really listened and thought about what they were listening to, and so yeah, the thing is that there's joy rock and roll is so full of joy and it's so full of it's the, the 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 neat the desire for freedom and the, and the willingness to risk everything for it, you know, there is meaning in the sound of a ride cymbal. There's a way in which somebody does a particular rhythmical thing or like a guitar chord or way in which play that is really more power. And there's more, there's more meaning in it than in the meaning of the words. Well, there's as much. So, it's a, which you. I want both of those. I want this. I want that's that's also like what I was trying to do in downhill from everywhere. I want you to listen to the way these guys are playing this, and we really worked on. We just that, that's my garage band. There, you know, the thing that I've strived for was just to have the words engage you in a in a place where you care. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do, and 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 to do that, you have to hear them. I'll just I'll just ask you one more question about that
4: because we've determined that you've got. A new album that's hard rocking and you're back in the game. All, all the nice things I want to say about your record. When you write, you, you do write political songs. Do you start out in anger sometimes?
1: Yeah, I met this guy once. He's a punk rocker. I can't even remember his name now. And he was telling me, you know, I like your music. Okay. You know, I think, but, you know, I think it should be a little angrier. You know, I think you should be angrier. I just dug that he was willing to talk to me because it was such a shame with which all this (laughs) nasal shoegazing, like, introspective songwriters were sort of swept aside by punk music. But yeah, I think that after all, there's plenty of stuff that I'm angry about. I think that I have something similar, but it's not about getting the anger out, but the hope in. I want to engage about what's going on in this life and... And also tr- try to at least chart a course or in some way, you know, direct myself and whoever else is listening to a possibility mm-hmm. that things might be, could be improved upon, you know. And really, that always comes down to improving yourself and first, you know. Are you
4: more hopeful now than you've been in the past?
1: Well, the whole, like that the Haitians say, you know, l'espard fait vivre. Hope makes life. I, that, that's such a simple language, in Haitian Creole. But I mean, what they mean is like hope makes life possible. So, yeah, you know, I'm hopeful as a motherfucker. You know, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to find it wherever I, I look. You know, <laughs>
4: okay, I think we've got your next album title.
1: <laughs> right, hopeful as a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, listen. Thank you so much for this. It's been just fantastic.
1: Uh, Bruce, thanks a lot for the conversation. I really really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks to Jackson Brown for talking about his career and the inspiration behind his new album, Downhill From Everywhere. You can check out that album, plus all of our favorite Jackson Brown songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chaffee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond.
2: Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.
3: Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn
1: more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.